Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Sydney today with uh, an old friend and colleague of mine, Peter Baines. He's a former forensic investigator, uh, an author, a speaker, of course, and uh, also the founder and chairman of the incredible charity Hands Across the Water. Peter, it's great to see you. Oh, likewise, Mike. It's, it's been, been too some, long. It's been some years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I always remember because we, we sort of, I sort of started speaking about the time, uh, you know, I think when, when you started getting very busy. Uh, so it, it's it's good to see you as we've gone along this journey. A Absolutely, way. mate. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you know we've we've been living in some extraordinary times, of course, and mm. we're going to come back to some of the stories that have uh, shaped your own life journey. But it, you know, given the recent events that we've now seen in uh, Belgium and, of course, across Europe, yes, uh, as someone who worked in counterterrorism uh, and, of course, as a forensic investigator, what do you think is happening on the ground there right now? There's a lot of people who are very busy, and I think that there's, um, in something like uh, what we've just seen in the last 24 hours unfold, it, um, it uh, duplicates or, or brings back the work that I did in Bali after the bombings of 2002, and uh, uh, for Australia, that was uh, um, our first real exposure to, to death and terrorism on our doorstep of that size and and the police agencies who are responsible for um, in the investigation um, of the, the acts, the identification of those who uh, may have committed those offences um, and then the uh, processing of the crime scene and this is the thing, the complexity of jobs like this where you have uh, scenes of crime and that's exactly what these are which are over such a large, um, a large area, and uh, in the situations that we've seen unfold in Brussels, it just really impacts around how the community goes about their business. Because it's unlike a, a murder scene, for example, where you can process that scene within a couple of hours. But these are very complex scenes that will take. Um, highly trained people um, many many days to process and collect the evidence because we've always got to keep in mind that at, at some point which is normally a couple of years down there'll be a uh, there'll be a judicial inquiry and a, a court process where these people who will be alleged to have committed these acts need to be prosecuted and uh, they need to be and that needs to occur in accordance with the law and uh, so there's a lot of work to be done. Of course, there's the, the trauma to the, uh, the victims who have survived. And then there's a the process of the uh, forensic identification of those who have not survived. And that was something that uh, we did in Bali. And, uh, and then on a scale which is unprecedented, what we did in Thailand after the tsunami with the identification of the thousands of bodies and what was what, what was the scale of, of the, the catastrophe in, in Thailand so in Thailand it was on the back of the Southeast Asian tsunami so there was somewhere between 250 and 300,000 people who lost their lives 
And in Thailand, we recovered the bodies of 5,395 people who had died. And uh, that was and remains the world's largest disaster victim identification attempt. It was thousands bigger than 9-11, and therefore thousands bigger than anything that had been seen before. So the the, the scale and the complexity and the rules that you've got to go through and follow to identify people because it's it's not something that you can make a mistake and correct. So there's a very uh, sound forensic process to follow to identify people, to repatriate them back to their loved ones. And so that's another aspect of, of what the uh, specialists would be doing uh, right now. The scale and magnitude of what happened in Thailand, uh, I mean, it's almost a foregone conclusion that they weren't prepared for that. What, 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 when you first landed on the ground, what, what, were you, what were you faced with? Yeah, it's, uh, I remember sitting in the airport in Denpasar, uh, leaving Bali after the bombings. And there were 202 people who died there. And I remember speaking with a, a colleague of mine from Victoria Police and uh, um, we both commented, well, that's the largest job we'll ever be involved in our policing careers in the forensic area. And, uh, um, and then it was two years later and we we're dealing with something that was uh, uh, 10 times bigger than Thailand and uh, then Bali and uh, and it was something that to turn up into a temple uh, to walk through the gates of this beautiful Buddhist temple and see the ground covered with decomposing bodies and at this one particular temple there was three and a half thousand people mm. and um, I'd suggest Mike that there was not one person there who had seen that scale before and uh, all of us that worked there were forensic practitioners where we'd dealt with and been exposed to death, but never on a scale of what was encountered in Thailand. You know, I mean, one of the, I guess, amazing things is that from that experience, you, uh, it really transformed your life, not just your perspective. Uh, was it kind of binary? Was it like you either had to do something or it just wasn't actually possible to, to keep going at some level? I think it's, um, um, I spent several months working in Thailand, uh, leading both the Australian and indeed the international teams in the identification work that we did. And, and the challenges were quite unique based upon the scale, based upon the challenges, uh, based upon the workforce. So as an example, we had uh, 400 fren- 450 forensic practitioners who came from 36 different countries mm. and there was no leadership structure in place. Okay. There's, no, there's no org chart that says if something <laughs> happens tomorrow, yeah. this is a country that is in charge. And, and what, what, what adds to that layer of complexity is when you have something like this of that scale, the, 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 the country where it's happened, they're dealing with what we call community policing issues. So they're dealing with the, um, you know, the restoration of, of civil order. They're, they're dealing with the victims. They're, they themselves have s- sustained a lot of loss. So we're bringing in all these additional resources to do, do a job that um, hadn't been done before. So there was, there was great learnings to come out of that. And to your point, it, it certainly did uh, transform my life. And I often say now, um, there's an, the only thing that's consistent with what my life was prior to uh, the 26th of December 2004 is that I have three children. Nothing remains the same other than that, that fact. 
what I do for a living, where I live, the, the wonderful, amazing opportunities I have as you do to travel the world and share stories. And um, uh, it, it's, we, I think what we get to do, we live a blessed life. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, and I never forget that because of what I used to do and what I do now, it's, uh, it's a wonderful journey. What are some of the, I guess, the leadership things you had to overcome in that process? I think the um, some of the things is that there's, I often see that there's two types of leadership and when we look at an organisation there's an org chart that's in place and it's very clear who's at the top and you can cascade all the way down and, and um, but in, in circumstances of crisis, disaster or even unprecedented challenges that might come about through extraordinary growth in an organisation that we find true leaders are identified by their actions and their reactions mm. and it's this concept of leadership without authority it's 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 what people do not the positions that they hold that really makes a difference and when we look at the what put those leaders and many of them were Australians into those positions of leadership in Thailand it was the fact that they acted with speed because when we know that there's a position when there's an opportunity within the marketplace those who move quickly will hold that position and those that follow they've got to try and play catch up so it's about acting with speakers if you wait until you've got all of the answers and you would know this from the the, the space that you operate in is those who hold the place in in creating you know these new wonderful things around technology it's because they've moved quickly mm. and then there's a risk and then they and because if they wait until they've signed everything off someone will beat them Someone will be there first. And it's not the same as being reckless, though, is it? No, it's not. And it, you know, and that's one of the things. There's speed, sensitivity, and structure. And I talk about structure within organisations. And um, coming from the place where a heavily structured organisation regulated and people overlooking what we did both internally and externally. And if we if we had an operation, we 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 found a gap. We wrote policy and procedure. If we, if we reviewed an operation that was already policy, we wrote more anyway. <laughs> and we, we, you take away the creativity of leaders. Yeah. And you know from the work that you do, if you have an organization that leads with innovation, you have to accept there'll be mistakes. And you can't punish people for making mistakes if you want them to be creative. Mm. And um, so it's certainly finding the balance. And, and my experience working in uh, crisis and disaster and I've worked in Saudi Arabia after the floods, I've worked in Japan after the tsunami, Bali and Thailand and indeed in Australia and, and it's those leaders who um, have the courage to make hard decisions at the time who stand out. And, and do you find that leadership is quite emergent? I mean these people aren't often appointed are they? They're people that rise up beyond probably what they've been uh, assigned to do. Absolutely and it's a and Thailand is a, is, a, is a really good example of that. With the 36 different countries that were represented, mm. there, there was no consistency. In the, in the police, for example, we have a rank of people. So the, you know, there might be a superintendent, inspector, a sergeant, and there's a rank to it. And that very clearly identifies the seniority within the organisation in which you work. But when you take people from, not only just from... Uh, New South Wales and how that applies across Australia but when you take people to work with the Dutch police well your rank is totally irrelevant hmm. because what they're called in, in, in Denmark or in Sweden or, or Germany or France is so different to Australia 
and and that becomes totally irrelevant. It, it comes down to what people do, not the positions that they hold. You know, organisations are often put in similar moments of crisis, uh, and it's interesting. I mean, some some few survive that and thrive and reinvent themselves, but often they tend to close in and become more bureaucratic. Mm. Um, in the organisations you've worked with, how have you sort of helped them unlock that emergent leadership in crisis? I think there's um, a, a number of things, and some of it that we've spoken about is having the courage to let people make decisions. Mm. And I think the other really important thing, and this applies on an individual level, is for me is organisations having a very clear clarity of purpose so that they know what they stand for, they know what they're about, they know what are the negotiables and what's not. And uh, um, we all have, as an organisation, statements of values and vision statements, and you can say whatever you want in those things, but it's really, if there's congruence between what's written and the way that the the teams of the employees lead and represent the organisation, good chance of being successful. And I think when when organisations are challenged, either through crisis, disaster or ever said unprecedented growth if they know what they're absolutely about what is fundamentally the most important thing and it's surprising mark the number of the senior leadership teams you'll talk to who will have a statement of values who will have a vision statement you ask them these questions and there's so many different reasons why what they say is their fundamental non-negotiable right is it around profit is it around service is it around people is it around their customers whatever it is it's up to them to decide but how can you have congruence through the organization if we're not clear if it's a multiple choice vision statement yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah are you finding that corporations are more aligned now to this idea that their purpose is beyond profit uh, and, what, and what's driving this? Yeah, and it's a it's a really interesting space I found myself working in, and and it's this journey that you you alluded, alluded to of how different things are, and <laughs> and now I work with organisations, and and the last book I wrote is is around uh, shared value and and um, uh, a corporate social responsibility program as a profit centre back to a business, and. And I'm very clear in the work that, I do. Because that's not, that's not an intuitive concept. Oh, and it's rejected by a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, they say, no, that's not why we do it. And, and I go, well, it's the only part of your business that's not about returning a profit. And the thing that, it, that, that I ha- um, help to demonstrate is that if, it, if your CSR, if your corporate social responsibility platform is a profit center back to you as a business, well, then everyone will be interested in it. Hmm. Because right now, for a lot of organizations who think they have a corporate social responsibility program, all they really have is corporate philanthropy. Right. So they'll carve off a net portion of their profit at the end of the financial year and say, this is going to our charity partners. There's a handing over of a check, there's some coffee and cake. Yeah. The charity walks away with a sum of money and the CEO or someone quite senior is, has that... Uh, uh, that presence of being there to hand over the check, feeling good. It's a form of medieval indulgences, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, because who else then benefits? Yeah. You know, and they'll write about it in the newsletter and say, this is what we've done, or send an email, or be in their sustainability report. And But how do those that are working for the organisation, many layers down, working on, you know, $50,000 a year, how do they take any benefit from that? And so when we do uh, a CSR program, one of the things that I, I help, an organization do is build partnerships that are meaningful for both 
Right. And it's certainly in the interests of the charity, of the not-for-profit, of the community sector, for their supporters, their business partners, to be making a profit out of it. And there's all these different ways that we can make profits out of out of giving and supporting. And and if if it's a profit centre back, well, then the CFO will be more interested rather than just seeing it as a cost centre. And this is the thing. When a business starts to enter into a difficult time, they look at their cost centres and they'll reduce them. The first to go will be the commitment to charity. The next will be their, their, their professional development of their teams. Mm. And that is when the, the community organisations probably need the support the most. The, the, the executive retreat, though, is usually the last to go. <laughs> <laughs> and you're normally there speaking and spending time with these yeah, guys. But, okay. uh, um, yeah, so what we do is... So your question, is there an emergence in the desire to do more than make profit? And, and there is. And I think that there's a lot of... Uh, organizations and individuals and senior people who want to do more but I talk about building a CSR program as as intent uh, doesn't necessarily or, or desire doesn't necessarily um, equal capabilities mm-hmm. so as an organization will say um, we want to be um, leaders in technology or, or be at the forefront of what's happening with changing technology and so forth and they bring someone like you in because they recognize they don't have that skill internally but what a lot of organizations will say is well we want to have a, a corporate social responsibility program we want to engage with the community sector we'll carve off some money now well where's it going to sit within the organization well it's either with PR it's either with marketing or it's internal comms. And we say, well, just add that to what you do. And you say, well, there's a desire, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's competence there. Why would someone, just because they have a desire, then have the skill to bring the best return back to business? So I think there's, an, uh, there's a real opportunity and an appetite to do this in an effective way because then they realize if they gain a benefit, the pie that they've got to give away will grow. How do you get to, to the idea of profit, though? Is, is this just clever accounting in, in terms no, of not know, at all. recognizing marketing exposure? Or? No, not at all. And I'd like to say that I'm the creator of all these things, but I'm not. You know, these are proven <laughs> HR returns that if you can, um, if your CSR program contributes to the culture of the organization, well, perhaps it's one of the things that reduces your staff turnover. Right. Perhaps it makes you more and more attractive as an employer. Perhaps it differentiates you from the other competitors. Perhaps it improves your brand image. So there's all of these things, opens up new business opportunities. So the, 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 the principles and the returns are very clear around what a good, effective CSR program will do, particularly when it's built on shared experiences. And this is particularly important for this new generation of talent. Uh, I know it's becoming quite popular in the US to have you know, even special categories of organization which have social good as part of their, their charter. Oh, I, I think of like, I think Warby Parker and there's a, there's a number of them that and Tom's shoes that are uh, oh yes absolutely it's actually it's actually you, you can't separate it from from their no. product and, and I profile uh, Tom's shoes in my in my last book and right. I look at it and I say was that a um, a cause led initiative that's turned out to be a, a hugely profitable enterprise. Or was it a, a, a social enterprise uh, that was always about making profit that's addressed a social need? I said, well, the lines are blurred and what does it matter? Mm. 
and and you know there's uh, plenty of reason to be excited around what Tom's does. They recently sold their ten millionth pair of shoes at an average of uh, forty dollars a pair, and you go, well, that's that's pretty good, isn't it? It's yeah. a decent return, and to give and to give away ten million pair of shoes, and they've obviously gone in lots of different directions, but it's. Uh, um, and you know, people are people are seeing the opportunities there to engage within their community and what it does. And your point around the disabled, and then who cares for these people when the elderly are the disabled? Mm. And I take people into the slums of Bangkok, and um, there's a hundred thousand people that live in this one slum, and uh, it brings a tear to your eye just walking through these areas to see that there's. And that's the thing: the contradiction in Bangkok. There's so many beautiful amazing hotels and there's an incredible amount of money within bank within thailand and bangkok and but you only have to travel a short distance to enter the slums and and you see these people and think you know it's uh um it's so wrong that society allows them to exist in that level but i take people in i take corporates in and, and we undertake work projects and i have people who have been on the most amazing incentive programs you can imagine who will spend a day um, you know painting a kindergarten in one of the slums that we look where we work in and they'll say it's the most rewarding engaging experience I've ever had and, and for me to see these people at conferences years later and they still come up and say that day we had in the slums best day on tour best day on conference and these are guys that as I say travel the world so you create opportunities and people people want to be involved Let's talk a little bit about the charity that you did create, Hands Across the Water. Uh, it's, can you talk a little bit about the journey around that? And, yeah. And, it's, and what, what it, I guess where it is now? Yeah, it was something that um, on my last tour in uh, Thailand, I, um, it was funny, I, I was invited to, to, to start speaking and sharing these stories as a keynote speaker in between my second and third tour. And, and I had lunch with um, a mutual uh, friend of ours and uh, he shared the stories of a speaker and told me about the industry and gave me his business card and told me about the money you get paid and, and I, I quite literally walked away and dropped his business card in the bin and I went, <laughs> I went I'm, in the, I'm in the police, who's going to pay me to share stories and what could I possibly have to share with people who are in finance or building or whatever and and I went back to Thailand and I met a group of children, 32 kids who'd all lost their parents. Yeah. And they were living in a tent. And it wasn't a temporary structure because this tent had been there for eight months. And what I've seen happened and, and across all the disaster areas I've worked, and, and uh, I've mentioned those, but organisations, people, governments, corporate, NGOs, charities turn up in the, in the face of crisis. And, and um, too many leave too quickly. Mm. And six months on, they pack up their tent and they leave. And what message does that send to the communities? It says you're on your own. Mm. And um, it was eight months on after the tsunami and I saw these kids and, uh, and it was very clear to me I couldn't change what had happened, but it felt within my capacity to do something around what happened next for them. So I started the charity called Hands Across the Water with a colleague of mine and um, she was from the UK and she said to me, do you want to do this? I said, sure, seems to make sense, why not? And, uh, and we started uh, Hands with the intent of building a home for these kids. And 
I was still working full time in the police. I had no idea how I was going to raise the money, and I thought, hang on, if half of those stories that guy told me about making money as a speaker are true, that's how I'll raise the money. So. I called him up and said, remember that opportunity? And uh, so I started speaking and getting paid to speak. And that I used those uh, uh, speaking fees to fund the building and my contribution towards the first orphanage. And, and then we went there and opened it in um, uh, 2007. And I drove away and I thought, well, what, happen- what happens now to these kids? We've built them a home, but who pays for the staff, who pays for the maintenance, who pays for the utilities, who pays for the food, who pays for the education. Uh, really, we've just started, haven't we? Hmm. And uh, so I returned to Australia, and, and that was um, uh, ten and a half years ago. And, the, and at the time when I started the charity, I was able to do so uh, without taking an income or recovering any expenses because I was working full time. And now through what I do with the speaking and consulting and writing, um, I sustain my life and Hans has now grown to the point where we've raised uh, over 15 million Australian dollars and uh, we've never spent a cent of donors money on administration and fundraising and part of that is because of a unique structure that we put in place and hmm. where we spend money on on employment of staff here in Australia we spend money on marketing and auditing and accounting and but I created a commercial entity that sits next to the charity and the role of that commercial entity is to undertake income generation activities not related to donations, and then we use that to fund right. the operations of the charity. So when That's someone totally donates, transparent, absolutely. So when someone funds, uh, uh, someone donates a hundred dollars to me, a hundred percent of that donation will go um, uh, to the kids in the communities. If we run a leadership program and someone buys a seat at that leadership program and uh, they spend $200 to come and be entertained by a group of speakers for the day, that's not a donation, mm. and that goes into our commercial acti- uh, commercial uh, side of the business, which then funds the operations of the charity. And then at the end of the financial year, we look at our uh, look at the balance sheet and go, okay, these are our current costs for next year, we'll make a, tra- a donation across to the, to the charity. So totally transparent, and it's just a different way of doing it. And, we started with just the one home. Uh, we now have seven homes across Thailand. We have uh, uh, over 300 children who tonight will put their head down in a safe and loving environment. Last year we provided 320,000 meals to our staff, our kids and our community. And, and my, that could be the measure of our success, mm. but it's not. And I think 10 years on, it's almost a little bit early to measure our success because what I say our success will be measured by is the lives of the kids that we change. Because if we have, what's the value of our kids who live with us for say five or eight years who then leave our home and go and work in a rubber plantation or a bar or worse a brothel. Our measure of success has to be when our children leave our home and go into well-paying careers. So to that point, we've got uh, 28 of our kids at university today, and we've got two who have graduated. Uh, one who's just finished, uh, graduated with a business degree, and our first, he graduated last year with a law degree. And uh, But for the, um, uh, the, the support that Hans has given him, he, he's, he lost his parents in the tsunami 
and uh, his auntie was living with an abusive husband, both physically and, and uh, verbally, and at the age of 12, uh, said to gain this young boy, you need to leave school, pulled him out of school. Oh. said, you need to go and earn your own income to support you living here. And uh, luckily he found his way to our home and uh, went back to school, finished school, went to university, graduated with university, and now look at him and say, what's the likelihood of his kids working in a rubber plantation? I'd say very little. Not that there's anything wrong with that, unless there's a choice. And that's what we're creating. So that's the impact that we can have. Peter, you're an inspiration. You've had a wonderful um, journey and adventure. And uh, it's been a great honor ch- chatting to you. And oh, seeing it's you good again. to catch up, Mike. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.